0: These Ash Wednesday recollections at Our Lady of Good Counsel Retreat House with Monsignor Thorburn on the power of silence took place February 14, 2018. These and other recordings are available at our website, GoodCounselRetreat.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's always good to start out a little day of recollection with with prayer, and there's no better prayer than we just prayed, the Divine Mercy Chaplet invoking uh, the mercy of God upon us all. Uh, Just to introduce myself, my name is Monsignor Timothy Thorburn, and I serve as the Vicar General for the Diocese, but more importantly, I have the job of being the chaplain for the Carmelite nuns in Valparaiso. Uh, Bishop Ruskowitz once said that the job at the Chancery will get you into purgatory but the nuns will get you into heaven so I hope I have a guarantee at least to get to the first Uh, it's a great privilege to uh, be the nuns chaplain how many of you have been to the Carmel of Jesus Mary and Joseph in Valparaiso good number Uh, If you've never been there, I'd urge you to just go out and visit. It's open from uh, about 6 in the morning to 6 at night, and you can just go make a visit any time. We have Mass Monday through Friday at 7, and Mass on Saturday and Sunday at 8. We just had another girl enter yesterday, which brings the number up to 30. So we've been blessed with uh, a lot of uh, vocations. The average age is 33 of the sisters, so it's a... A good group. Well, you are uh, uh, starting off Lent with penance uh, right here because you have to listen to my talks. So that's, uh, I hope you earn a lot of grace that way. As you can see, I've already been to Mass this morning. Tell you a little story. Monsignor Perkinton, of course, lives here at the retreat house, and he's the chaplain for the Marian sisters. Uh, up on top of the hill. And so he had Ash Wednesday Mass for them one year. And since there wasn't a priest, he imposed the ashes upon himself first and and then went to impose the ashes on the sisters. And he noticed that as they were coming up, they they, they all were trying to suppress laughter. And he thought, well, I don't think my sermon was that funny. And he just was wondering what it was about. Well, he went in the sacristy after Mass and when he imposed the cross on, it came out in the form of an L. <laughs> so he was the loser there. You know. That's not altogether inappropriate for, uh, for for Ash Wednesday. I one time uh, was giving a, a, a talk, and before the talk I... I I, I solemnly and and sternly invoked everyone to uh, turn off their cell phones, and just as I began the talk, a cell phone went off, and it was mine. (laughs) Uh, A a portion of humble pie never tastes good, but it's always good for you. So if you don't have your cell phones off, uh, you can uh, uh, take care of that now. I'd like to loosely base my my first talk on this book by Cardinal Robert Sarah entitled uh, "The Power of Silence." Uh, if you're not familiar with the book and you like to read spiritual books, I couldn't encourage uh, that one more. It's one of those books that uh, some of the pages are so rich you you want to meditate on it for a week. Uh, just one page, but he certainly uh, tells very clearly uh, some of the problems in our world and we'll we 'll touch on uh, some of those things uh, just uh, in in a sketchy way at least uh, today. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. These words are from the 55th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, verses 8 and 9. One of the definitions of insanity is that one does not see things as they really are. They deny Reality, They deny what is. And to a greater and lesser degree, this applies to each one of us. And we can't avoid it. We can't avoid not being able to see things exactly as they are because of original sin and our own personal sins. Sin distorts things. Sin keeps us from seeing things as they are. And that's why the saints are the most sane of all people. God sees things and people as they really are. We often see them in a more or less distorted way, distorted by, for example, desire. We see something in the store window and we say, I have to have that. I must have that. Well, no, we don't have to have that. But we convince ourselves our judgment is distorted by this idea that we can't live without it. Or, or anger. Anger can distort the way that we see ourselves or other people. Just think of politics today. It's, it's dominated by anger And that anger keeps us from getting a lot of things done. It keeps our politicians from getting things done. Or it can be distorted by ignorance. Uh, Imagine somebody getting behind the wheel of a car who's never driven a car before in their life. Something's going to end up distorted, probably a bumper out of the deal. But these things and many other things can keep us uh, from seeing things as they are. What is it that we are seeing in a more or less distorted way? The Greek philosophers and medieval theologians boiled it down to what they called the transcendentals. And this comes from the Greek word to climb across. And it has the sense of going beyond, going through something, to transcend something. And the transcendentals they identified are goodness, and truth, and beauty. We can recognize goodness and truth and beauty without having somebody to explain them to us. I always say, if you go in an art museum and somebody has to tell you what it is, it isn't very good art. Now, maybe I'm simplistic and I don't understand the depths of modern art and all that, but if if, if it's so distorted that it isn't clear what it is, then... In my humble way of looking at art, uh, that isn't something that is beautiful. For believers, the ultimate goodness and truth and beauty is God. Yet because God made everything, all things share in his goodness and truth and beauty. And so a denial in one way or another or an inability to recognize Goodness and truth and beauty ultimately denies God. Let's look at goodness. The greatest goodness is life. First of all, let's think about material or matter. You see a beautiful mountain, you see a bubbling brook in the forest. Or perhaps you see a glorious sunset. We recognize those things as being good. Or a tree, or a field full of corn, or a pasture with cattle. That's also good. But in a certain sense, it's better. It's better than material. Why? Because it has life. There's plant life. There's animal life then we see a human person. And that is the highest form of created life. Why? Because man and woman are created in the image and likeness of God. Yet we can distort these greatest natural goods. We can distort the greatest natural good of life, in a variety of ways. Perhaps somebody strips a forest bare in order to build buildings and and doesn't replace them. It can cause erosion, cause all kinds of difficulty. Or perhaps people treat animals cruelly or misuse that life made in God's uh, image and likeness, human life, by hatred, or abuse, or neglect, or abortion, or claiming that power which belongs to God alone by by practices that are now common. Gender selection, abortion of the handicapped, artificial birth prevention, and even the conception in immoral and unnatural ways in a laboratory rather than through the marital embrace. All of these things are a denial of that goodness now let's look at truth truth 2 plus 2 is 4 2 plus 2 isn't 3 it isn't 5 or it isn't any other number 2 plus 2 is 4 now that may be theoretical yet it has real-life consequences. If a structural engineer makes a mistake in his addition and comes up with a wrong and untrue answer regarding to the load that a floor in one of his buildings will hold, then that could mean that some people die because the floor caves in. Any truth that is ultimately denied will result in harm or death. There's the old saying that God always forgives, man sometimes forgives, and nature never forgives. If you decide to drive your car up against a brick wall, the wall isn't going to say, oh, this time I... I won't hurt you. No, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot because nature doesn't forgive. Now, this doesn't mean that God is being mean to us. It simply means that there are consequences to action. We hear today a lot about relativism. And relativism is a uh, a philosophy or understanding of reality that that posits that reality exists in my head what i decide is true is true it's true for me Relatism, relativism relativism would say that well you may have your truth and and my i have my truth and we just have to agree to disagree Well, that might sound like a nice platitude, but it simply doesn't work. There is the truth. There aren't many truths. It doesn't work in mathematics, and it doesn't work in anything else if we believe that truth comes simply from what I decide is true. So everything is either, according to this theory, everything is true, which you th- any one of us think is true, but if that's true, then nothing is true. And we know that if someone claims to have absolute truth in a relativistic world, they're going to be persecuted. That's why we have so many martyrs in the church. That's why Jesus was crucified He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that was not permitted to uh, continue. This is what Pope Benedict meant when when he spoke of his condemnation of the dictatorship of relativism. If truth does not rule us, then only power will. Think about that in our world today. If people or a a, a government or any group of people are not imbued with truth, are not ruled by truth, then the only thing they have left is power. And so the one with the most power is the one whose truth will prevail. Now let's consider beauty. How often have you heard someone say, or maybe you've said it yourself, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, let me tell you that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. That is false. Beauty is in the eye of the creator. Again, we know instinctively what beauty is. Unfortunately, in architecture, in both uh, civil and uh, ecclesial architecture, we've had a reduction in in beauty in many places. And in many places we're restoring that beauty, especially in churches. But if you walked into a, a, a room that just had no decoration whatsoever, or you walk into this chapel or the Newman Center or something else, you would instinctively know One is beautiful, and one is either less beautiful or not beautiful at all. Beauty is in the eye of the creator. Beauty is not the sum of external features of a person. Beauty is the presence of grace in the soul. Beauty is goodness and truth made visible. We've all known people who were physically attractive, but who were mean and cruel people. And we've also known people that the world wouldn't take a second look at, yet were filled with kindness and self-sacrificing love. Think of somebody like Mother Teresa. We don't even think of her in terms of physical beauty or not, but if you looked didn't know who she was and saw a picture of her, she'd say, it's not a very pretty person, got wrinkles all over and kind of everything looks kind of shrunken like a prune on her face and everything. But goodness and love just flowed from that woman so that that was the beauty that we recognized in her. To be actually good and true and beautiful is to be the way that we were made in the image and likeness of God. And that is our goal, to form ourselves, to allow God to form us to be more like himself. And Lent is a focused time each year that the church gives us to identify in ourselves those ways which are not good and true and beautiful to identify them, and to correct them, and indeed to root them out. But how do we do that? Again, Cardinal Seurat, in his book, The Power of Silence, provides us with one sure way, and that is that silence that we can enter into to allow God to form us. The subtitle of the book is Against the Dictatorship of Noise. Cardinal Seurat explains that God is essentially silent. He speaks, God speaks only one word, and that is the eternal word, his Son, the Word made flesh. He says, the word is not just a sound. It is a person. It is a presence. God is the eternal word, or in Greek, the logos. This is what St. John of the Cross declares in his spiritual maxims when he writes, The Father spoke one word, which was his Son. And this word he always speaks in eternal silence. And in silence it must be heard by the soul. The Book of Wisdom already pointed out this same interpretation in regard to the way which God intervened to deliver his chosen people from their captivity in Egypt. This unforgettable act took place at night. While gentle silence enveloped all things and night in its swift course was now half gone, Your all-powerful word leapt from heaven, from the royal throne. This is also the introit for the Christmas Mass, although it comes from the Old Testament. We see silence again in his words. No prophet ever encountered God without withdrawing into the solitude of silence. Moses, Elijah, and John the Baptist encountered God in the great silence of the desert. Today, too, monks seek God in solitude, in silence. Cardinal Seurat says, I am speaking not just about a geographical solitude or movement, but about an an interior state. It's not enough to be quiet, either. It's necessary to become silent. We become enveloped in that silence every time we receive a sacrament. In each sacrament, God enters into our world and to each one of us in silence. Think about it. We may see or hear the external rite, but we don't hear God going into the soul of an infant when he is baptized. We don't hear God coming into us when we receive Holy Communion. God acts and enters into our world and into our lives in silence. Cardinal Seurat speaks of the danger of noise. He says, "'Modern society can no longer do "'without the dictatorship of noise. "'It lulls him into an illusion of cheap democracy "'while snatching our freedom away "'with the subtle violence of the devil, "'that father of lies. "'But Jesus repeatedly tells us, "'If you continue in my word, "'you are truly my disciples,' And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He says, today, in a highly technological, busy world, how can we find silence? Noise wearies us, and we get the feeling that silence has become an unreachable oasis How many people are obliged to work in a chaos that distresses and dehumanizes them? Cities have become noisy furnaces in which even nights are not spared the assault of noise. Without noise, postmodern man falls into a dull, insistent uneasiness. He is accustomed to permanent background noise which sickens, yet reassures him. Without noise, man is feverish. He's lost. Noise gives him security, like a drug on which he has become dependent. With its festive appearance, noise is a whirlwind that avoids facing itself. Agitation becomes a tranquilizer, a sedative, a morphine pump a sort of reverie, an incoherent dream world. But this noise is a dangerous, deceptive medicine, a diabolic lie that helps man avoid confronting himself in his interior emptiness. The awakening will necessarily be brutal. We talked about hearing something and knowing instinctively that it is true. When I hear those words of Cardinal Seurat, they ring so true in our world and even in my own life. Cardinal Seurat speaks of the healing power of silence. He says, interior silence is the end of judgments, of passions and desires. Once we have acquired interior silence, We can transport it with us into the world and pray everywhere. But just as interior asceticism cannot be obtained without concrete mortifications, it's absurd to speak about interior silence without exterior silence. Silence is not easy to acquire. It's something that must be practiced. It's something that we have to try and try again. But first of all, we have to get away from the noise. Cardinal Seurat right re, rightly reveals that the, the power of those who live in silence are the contemplatives in the church. Again, the most powerful ones that are in our world. In our diocese, we've had the privilege of having the Pink Sisters and the Carmelites here for years. And I'm convinced that they have both helped us and protected us in ways that we won't understand until eternity. Cardinal Seurat says, Without understanding the work of the missionaries and the merit of their sacrifices, we can say that the monks and nuns are the greatest spiritual force in the church. Contemplatives are the greatest evangelizing missionary force, although they never leave their monasteries. They are the most important and most precious organ that transmits life and maintains the essential energy throughout the body. God chooses persons to whom he entrusts the mission of dedicating their lives to prayer adoration, penance, suffering, and daily sacrifices accepted on behalf of their brethren for the glory of God so as to fill up in their flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for his body, the church. These persons are creatures of silence. They are constantly in the presence of God. Night and day they sing the praises of his name for the church and for all humanity. We do not hear them because they contemplate the invisible and carry on the work of God. The men and women who pray in silence, in night, and in the solitude are supporting the pillars of Christ's church. In these confused times, contemplatives are the ones who really spend themselves in the generous offering of their lives for an existence that is more faithful to the promises of the Son of God. I've had people say, well, why don't those nuns go out and do something? Why don't they go out and work in a hospital? Why don't they teach in the classroom? Those nuns and those contemplative monks are doing more than any of us do. They are the, the words of the preacher they are the hands of the nuns and the lay people who work among the poor. They are the ones who through us convey the face of Christ to those who have never seen him before. But without them, none of that would take place. None of that would be seen or understood. We should We should go to be... Where should we go to practice this silence? We can practice silence anywhere, but the best place to practice that sort of silence is in the presence of the most blessed sacrament. Again, Cardinal Seurat. For my part, I know that the great moments of my day are found in the incomparable hours that I spend on my knees in darkness before the most blessed sacrament of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am, so to speak, swallowed up in God and surrounded on all sides by his presence. I would like to belong now to God and alone to plunge into the purity of his love, and yet I can tell how poor I am, how far from loving the Lord as he loved me, to the point of giving himself up for me. He says, (coughs) There is nothing littler, nothing meeker, or more silent than Christ present in the host. This little piece of bread embodies the humility and the perfect silence of God his tenderness, and his love for us. If we want to grow and to be filled with the love of God, it is necessary to plant our life firmly on three great realities, the cross, the host, and the virgin. Crux hostia et virgo. These are the three mysteries that God gave to the world in order to structure, fructify, and sanctify our interior life, and to lead us to Jesus. These three mysteries can only be contemplated in silence. Silence, says Cardinal Seurat, is necessary to truly love. He says, silence is a prerequisite for love, and it leads to love. Love is expressed fully only by renouncing speech, noise, excitement, and exaltation. Its highest expression occurs in a death that is silent and totally offered up, for there is no greater proof of love than to give your life for the ones you love. The silence of love is the outcome and the point of arrival of someone who has given priority to silence in his life, it comes like a beautiful reward when man has managed to silence the dislikes, passions, and the furors of his heart. The love that says nothing and asks for nothing leads to the greatest love, the silent love of God. The silence of love is the perfect silence in the presence of God that sums up all goodness, all beauty, and all perfection God's ways are not our ways How do we narrow that gap between ourselves and God How do we embrace goodness truth and beauty and shed the imitations of goodness truth and beauty that so often catch our eyes and move our hearts Silence, which will reveal our failures and our sins, yet it also welcomes and invites our Savior, who alone can deliver us from the noise of our foolishness. It is He who so desperately wants us, wants to share our joy, our peace, and wants us to share His glory. It is in the Blessed Sacrament before the Blessed Sacrament that we come to know God in silence. Very soon we will uh, expose our Lord in the most blessed sacrament. And so I invite all of you to spend some time. Uh, you don't have to spend all of the time, but just come in and, and be with the Lord in that beautiful silence and allow him to heal your heart and to speak to your heart and to move your heart to embrace the destiny he has for each one of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.